Well, friends, uh, we're going to be turning our hearts now back to the book of 1 Peter and uh, these great words that the Apostle Peter shares with us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you this morning, have you ever been commissioned? Do you know what it is to, to experience commissioning? We, we witnessed a commissioning a couple of weeks ago up here on the stage with Pastor Barry when our, when our elders commissioned Pastor Barry. To, to be commissioned is to be called to a task, to be, to be invited to participate in a mission, a calling. And, and, and commissioning, if you've ever experienced it, you'll know it, it's a very powerful thing to have somebody specifically call you or task you to a mission. I, I witnessed this just this past week on Tuesday night. My daughter's been playing tennis this year for Chisago Lakes and is on the varsity tennis team. And Tuesday night, we had our senior night. And uh, my daughter's just a freshman, but, but some of the senior girls on the team, uh, at the end of the match that evening, we had a special time of celebration for those seniors. And, and uh, John Erickson, who's a member of our church, he's the coach. And, and John gathered the team around and all the parents around and was just you know, sharing words of encouragement and, and affirmation for all the seniors on the team. Many of these girls have been playing with him for years. And, and uh, it was just a really special time. And, and one of the things that I thought was really neat that John did in that time of celebrating these girls was he, he specifically shared how at the beginning of the season, he had commissioned each of them. Now, now he didn't use those words, but he had specifically called each of them to a specific role on the team. He, he shared with one girl, for example, how at the beginning of the year, he had pulled her aside and said, you know... I'm really counting on you to, to be a leader for the younger girls on this team. And, and, and you know, you're going to be somebody that is going to be able to bring these girls in and, and embrace them and help them to feel like they're a part of this program. And, and you could just see this senior girl's eyes light up as she remembered the calling that she had been given and how she was now being affirmed and how she had carried out that role on the team and how she had done that so well. And you could just see that it, it meant so much to her to have been commissioned in that way. I think back on my own life, some of the times where I've experienced this, this reality of being commissioned or called to a task or a service or a mission. I, I think of you know, years ago when I was first ordained into ministry, and how powerful that was to, to be a part of that ordination service where uh, the elders of my former church and the, the senior pastor I was serving with and my father was a part of that ordination service. My younger brother, who's a pastor, he was a part of that ordination. And, and just to have these godly men affirm me and, and then challenge me, call me to specific tasks in my ministry, it, it was a powerful thing. I remember, you know, three and a half, four years ago when Pastor Rick on this very stage, our former senior pastor, literally passed the baton to me and said, Jason, you're going to now take the lead of our church as our new senior pastor. And he commissioned me to, to serve you as our new pastor here at Lakes Free Church. That, that was a powerful time in my life. And, and that commissioning is something I'll never forget, something I take seriously to this very day. 
We, we look in Scripture, and all throughout the Bible, we see these powerful experiences and stories of commissioning. We, we think of God and his commissioning of Abraham to be the father of the Israelites, the, the father of God's people, the nation of Israel. We, we, we think of in the Old Testament when Moses, the leader of Israel through the Exodus, commissioned Joshua then to, to carry on the role of leading God's people into the promised land, and, and we see what a powerful, that, powerful message that was in Joshua's life. We think of the prophet Samuel's commissioning of King David to, to lead the nation of Israel. And, and all throughout the Bible, we see these commissionings. Peter himself, who we're studying the writings of the Apostle Peter. We remember just a few weeks back at the end of the series in John that we spent this past year. Peter himself had been commissioned by the Lord. If you recall, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Peter, do you love me? Well, yes, Lord, you know I love you then feed my sheep. And three times Jesus commissioned Peter that morning, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And and Peter had taken that calling, that commissioning seriously. And and, and so I can't help but think as we turn to the passage where we're going to be this morning that Peter had this concept of commissioning in his mind as he wrote the words that we're going to study this morning. If you recall where we've been in the last couple of weeks in, in our series in the book of 1 Peter, three weeks in so far, we've looked at 12 verses. And if you remember, in the Greek, these are all one continuous sentence. The first 12 verses, this, this introduction of the book of 1 Peter, where Peter is really unfolding this, this vision of the glorious salvation that is ours in Jesus and all the promises that are ours because of what Christ has done for us. Peter's just reminded us of all of these things to encourage us. Remember, he's writing to to Christians who were weary and beleaguered and under pressure, living in a world of opposition and challenges and trials, and and he's writing to encourage them. And so he starts out with these great reminders of our salvation, but now Peter's going to turn the page in his letter, and now he's going to change the theme to speak to what does it mean for us now in light of all of these promises how do we live our lives as exiles in this world? What, what does it mean for us to, to be the people of God in this world? And, and what does that look like? And so today, Peter is really going to lay out an initial commissioning, if you will, of Christians, of the church, of us, even today, 2,000 years later, he's going to commission us to our calling. What does it look like for us to live as God's people in this world and so this really today is a commissioning for us and in this commissioning we're going to see that peter provides three key admonitions for us i want to read our passage then i want to come back and i want to highlight these these admonitions this commissioning that peter gives us here today we're in first peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 21 this morning you can follow along in your bibles or on the screens behind me Peter says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, 
according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Here is really a a commissioning for us as God's people in this world. In our passage this morning, Peter provides these three admonitions. He, He says that we are to be a people in this world, a people who, number one, embrace a different hope. We're to be people who embrace a different hope. What's our calling? What's our commission? We embrace a different hope. Our passage this morning opens with a really profound word, a word that oftentimes when we read the Bible, we, we just quickly skip right over. Verse 13 begins, therefore, comma, therefore. Friends, have you ever considered how significant the word therefore is? One commentator I read this week declared that wherever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to ask the question, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? All right, keep that in mind. That's a good question to to just tuck away when you're reading the Bible. When you see the word therefore, wherefore is that therefore, therefore? Why is that there? What's that therefore all about? Friends, we need to understand that the word therefore helps us to discern the reasons for why something matters. It, it prompts us to consider the consequences of what has come before it. And it's also a word that inspires us to action. It, it's an indicator that we're supposed to do something as a result of everything that we've just seen. And, and so we need to ask the question, well, why is this therefore right here? What, what, what's Peter getting at here? Now, now, the consequence of the therefore in our passage this morning is found in the second half of verse 13. Peter calls us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying here is because of everything that we've just seen in verses 1 through 12, everything we've studied the past three weeks, because we have this identity as elect exiles, because we have these promises, because we have this great joy even in the midst of trials, because we have this great privilege of our salvation, because of all these things, Peter says, we are called to be a people of hope. Peter says, set your hope because the best is yet to come. Set your hope. Set your hope, Peter says. Now, this is important to remember, friends. When when Peter talks about hope here, the, the hope that he's referring to is the certainty that we have in all that God's promised us. Peter says, set your hope. He's not talking about wishful thinking here or mere speculation. This isn't like, oh man, I I sure hope all of this works out. That's not what Peter's doing here. 
And when he talks about hope, he's not pointing to things like the false sources of hope that our world so often looks to. Right, like, like careers and money and pleasure and, and all these things that the world thinks will provide hope but often leave us longing for more and, and, and just empty, right? That's not what Peter's talking about when he tells us to set our hope. No, instead, what Peter's pointing us to is the solid foundation of our salvation, a foundation that's based on a resurrected Savior, a foundation resting on God's promises, a foundation, friends, that we can build our lives on right here, right now, today. Or as the author of Hebrews describes it, who may have been the Apostle Peter, by the way, the author of Hebrews. We don't know for sure. But the author of Hebrews describes this hope in Hebrews 6.19. We have this hope, he says, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I love that imagery. The hope that we have, the hope that Peter calls us to, to set our lives upon, set your hope fully on. He, he calls it an anchor of the soul, firm and secure. I, I've shared this story with you in the past, but when I was a kid, one of my favorite things to do was, was to go to the playground and ride on the merry-go-round. Right? You remember the old school merry-go-rounds? You got, get the, got the center pole, and then they got the, the poles that spread out to the outsides, and you're hanging on that pole. And, and my brother and I, we used to love grabbing those poles. My dad would be on the ground, and he'd be whipping that merry-go-round. You know, we'd start going faster and faster. We'd be like, Dad, faster. That merry-go-round would start spinning and spinning and spinning. And, and if you know about the, the physics behind it, the centrifugal force, the further you get out on that merry-go-round, the faster it feels like you're spinning and the forces of gravity start pulling you further and harder uh, literally trying to throw you off that merry-go-round right and we'd be hanging on for dear life you know the wind's blowing in our face and we'd be like dad faster it was just awesome we loved it but friends if you remember if you would make your way to the center of that merry-go-round to the to the anchor pole right the anchor pole that was tethered to the ground the anchor that the merry-go-round spun on. And if you would wrap yourself around that center anchor pole, do you remember, friends, what would happen no matter how fast that merry-go-round spun? When you had yourself wrapped around that center pole, you were stable, you were secure. The, the forces of gravity wouldn't pull on you the same way as they would when you're on the outside. And, and you know, I, I think about that merry-go-round illustration because a lot of times our lives are, feel like we're on that merry-go-round and we're just hanging on for dear life. A, am I right? You know, the, the forces of life and the pressures of life and the trials and the temptations and the burdens. And, and a lot of times our lives feel like they're just spinning out of control and we're hanging on for dear life. But Peter reminds us, the author of Hebrews reminds us that we have a source of hope that we can set our lives fully upon. It's an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. This is what Peter means here in verse 13. He says, set your hope. He's telling us to hold fast to the promise of our salvation, to build our lives upon it, to rest our assurance on it, to keep our eyes focused on everything that God's promised to us. And one day, friends, we will know the full, full totality of this hope. 
when the Lord returns or, or when we meet him in glory. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a hope that's available to us now. It's a hope that we'll know in totality when the Lord returns. Friends, let me ask you this question. Are you looking for a sure and secure basis for hope in your life today? Do you feel like you're riding that merry-go-round, spinning around, and the forces of life are pulling you apart? If you're looking for a sure and secure basis of hope, friends, hold fast to that anchor. Set your hope fully on Jesus and all of his promises. Now, here, while Peter points us to this basis for hope that we have in Jesus, Peter's also realistic about the challenges of living in this world. He, he knows it's not always easy to set our hope fully on Jesus. He, he knows the reality of distractions and temptations that can cause us to, to loosen our grip on the hope that we find in Christ. And so this is why at the beginning of our passage here in verse 13, Peter gives us a game plan for maintaining our true hope. He, he gives us some principles here for how we can maintain our hope in Christ. Look at verse 13 again. Peter says here, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. Peter begins this passage by telling us, how do we set our hope fully on the grace that will be ours? He says, number one, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. That, that phrase there, prepare your minds for action in the Greek, it literally means girding up the loins of your mind. Now you might be thinking, well, what in the world does that mean, right? In the ancient world, friends, the average person wore these long flowing robes throughout the day. And, and, and when somebody had to engage in physical activity or strenuous activity, they would gird up their loins. And what that would mean is they would pull up their robes and they would tie their robe around their thighs or they would strap it around their waist with a belt so that they could then participate in strenuous work or, or walk fast or run if they needed to. Or if a soldier was going into battle, he would gird up his loins. He'd pull that robe up so that he had flexibility and movement. This is what Peter says here. He says, prepare your minds for action. And, and when Peter says this, what he's talking about in, in preparing our minds for action, he's talking about having a disciplined mind that's regularly engaged in the study of biblical truth. Look at if you're going to be a person who's going to set your hope in the right direction, you have to have a disciplined mind, gird up the loins of your mind, get ready for action. How do we do that? We do that by staying in God's word, by staying in God's truth. He then goes on, he says, and being sober-minded. So, so prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. What does this mean? Peter here has, has the idea of drunkenness in mind. He says, don't be like the drunkard who, who stumbles through life intoxicated and, and out of control. He says, be sober-minded. And, and being sober-minded for Peter is about being committed, <coughs> excuse me, to walking in God's truth and not numbed by the enticements of this world. Okay, don't, don't let the stuff of this world numb you to the reality of who God is calling you to be. And so again, how do we do that? Well, we stay rooted in God's word. See, Peter's point here at the outset of our passage is simply this. We cannot hope 
in the one that we do not know. And we can't set our hope on promises that we're not familiar with. And so if we're going to be a people of hope, we have to know the author of hope. And we get to know the author of hope by spending time in his word. And friends, the more we're in his word, the more we come to know him, the more we come to love him, the more we come to trust him. That's what Peter's getting at, friends. To be people whose minds are disciplined by the truth of God's word, which is the basis for the hope that we can set our lives upon. One of, one of the most hope-filled people I ever have known in my life was my grandpa, my grandpa Krause, my mom's dad. He's one of my great heroes in my life, one of the most important men God used to, to mold and shape me. He was a godly, faithful man. He, he ran a hardware store and lumber yard and construction company in a small town north of Green Bay, Wisconsin his whole life. That was his career, but his mission in life was serving the Lord. And he served the Lord by building two different churches, and he was an elder, and he was a faithful man, served in the Gideons, handing out Bibles at schools around northern Wisconsin. And his whole life he lived on, on mission for Christ. And, and he taught us as a family to, to set our hope fully on Jesus. He was a man who was regularly in God's word. He was one who, who took Peter's admonition here to, to discipline his mind in the study of God's word. He took that seriously. I'll never forget my grandpa in his final days. My grandpa died of stomach cancer. Very painful death. And I remember in the hospital that last month of his life when we would go to visit him. We, we'd go there and we'd sit at his bedside and, and we'd sing hymns together. And my brother and I, we'd open our Bibles and we'd start reading Scripture. And I'll never forget this. Almost 90% of the Scriptures we'd open to and we'd start reading, my grandpa would start reciting along with us by memory. He had spent so much of his life steeped in God's Word that even at the end of his life and his frailty and his weakness, it was those words of God that just flowed out from within him. It was just the natural overflow of his heart. And I'll never forget the last conversation I had with my grandpa. He, he called me over and I leaned in and he whispered quietly in my ear and he said, Jace, stay in the word. Stay in the word. Uh, out of all the things that he could share with me at the end of his life, the one thing he most wanted for me, his grandson, was to stay in the Word. Because he understood that a person whose life is grounded in the truth and promises of God's Word will be a person who has a life to the full. Stay in the Word, he said. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, do you want a life that's characterized by real hope, a hope that's sure and steadfast, no matter the circumstances you might face. If you're a person who wants that kind of hope, stay in the Word. Stay in the Word. Set your hope fully on Jesus and all that he's promised us. So this is the first part of our commissioning. Peter calls us to be people who embrace a different hope. 
But, but the second admonition he gives us in our passage here this morning, he says, number two, we are to be people who embrace a different calling. A different calling. Verse 14 in our passage starts out as obedient children. Now, now here again, friends, what does this imply? When, when Peter says as obedient children, what does that imply? It implies we're listening to our father, right? I mean, if you're an obedient child, it means you're listening to your father. You're following his instructions. So Peter is saying, look at as obedient children, implying that we are in God's word. We're studying his truth. We're seeking to live it out in obedience. And he goes on then in verses 14 through 16 to reveal our calling. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, now what does Peter call us to here as God's people in this world? It's a two-part calling. He says, number one, don't be conformed, and number two, be holy. This is our calling as God's people in this world. This is our commissioning. He says, look, don't be conformed to the ways of your former ignorance, the way you lived before you knew Christ. Be holy. The word conformed here that Peter uses in the Greek is syskematizo. Syskematizo. Now, friends, that just sounds bad, doesn't it? Right? Like, I mean, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Jason, I'm syskematizo, I'm going to be like, dude, I'm really sorry. You know, have you seen a doctor for that, Right? I mean, it just doesn't sound good. And it's not good, right? Peter says, do not be syskematizo. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed by the society around you. Don't just follow the crowd. Don't be molded into the pattern of this world. He's calling us here, friends, to be nonconformists. That's the calling of, of us as Christians. He's saying, look, don't fall into the mold of the sinful world world around you don't succumb to the passions of this world and the ignorant ways you used to live before you came to know jesus don't be conformed peter says i, I was thinking of peter's calling this week i was reading in my uh, news feed one morning and i came across a, a story out of taiwan Taiwan was celebrating the, the sardine run, the annual sardine run there in Taiwan. And in Taiwan, they have a tradition that goes back centuries. They call it fire fishing. And they only do this with the sardines that happen, you know, once a year. There's a specific time of year where the sardines come running through that area of the Pacific Ocean. And the Taiwanese, they've discovered that they go out there and they've got these sulfur, these rods tipped with sulfur, and they light the sulfur on fire. And they hold these sulfur rods that are burning and glowing. They hold them out over the sides of the boats, and the sardines just come jumping out of the water by the thousands literally into the nets of the fishermen following after the glow of the fire. And I thought to myself, this is exactly what Peter's talking about. Peter says, do not be conformed. Don't conform with the world around you. Don't fall into the, to the ways of the society. Don't be molded. Do what everyone else does. Friends, what's the age-old cry of rebellion in our world? Well, everyone else is doing it, Right? God tells us through the Apostle Peter, don't be like everyone else. Don't, don't be like the silly sardine who, who is led by the enticement of the fire into the trap that leads to his destruction. 
That's the same way our enemy works, friends. He tempts us. He entices us. The, the crowd tells us, oh, come on, let's do it. It's going to be fun. It's going to be great. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to feel good. And, and you follow the enticements of the culture around you. And the enemy has you entrapped and ensnared. Peter says, don't be like everybody else. And instead, he says, be holy. Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. The word holy in the Greek is hagios. It means to be pure, to, to be sacred, to be set apart. Now, friends, there's a reality to holiness and our call to holiness that, that we'll never fully attain in this life. Okay, so, so we're called to holiness, but we need to understand the Bible talks about holiness in, in two different ways. It talks about holiness in terms of our sanctification, which is our lifelong battle against sin. That's what we're called to engage in. We're called to battle our sin, to put it to death, to grow in conformity to Christ, so that as we go through life, we grow to look more like Jesus. And, and that process of sanctification can be a slow process. I, I was thinking of about this this week. I looked at my back, back window, and there's a tree in my backyard that my family and I planted about 15 years ago when we first moved into our house here in Lindstrom. And, and when we planted that tree, that tree was just a, a little sapling. I mean, it was, it was small enough I could pick it up and carry it to the backyard and put it in the hole. And now that tree, over the course of 15 years, is, has grown and is a big tree, and it makes a big mess that i got to rake up here in a few weeks, Right? But that process of the tree growing happened slowly. It, it was so slow, like you don't even see it. But over the course of 15 years, you can see it. That's what sanctification is, right? We, we don't see the growth instantaneously, but over the course of our lives, as we walk with Christ and we trust in Christ and we stay in his word, we begin to see, I, I'm not the same person I used to be. God's been doing a work in my life. That's sanctification. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm not fully holy today, but I'm growing in holiness. That's sanctification. The second type of holiness the Bible speaks about is glorification. And glorification is what we will experience when we go home to the Lord or when the Lord comes back and we meet him in the air. We will be transformed and we will be fully glorified. We will be like Jesus, free of all the entanglements of sin. We will experience true holiness. So, so, so we need to recognize that differentiation. Now, here's the thing, though. While we might not attain full holiness in this life, we are still called to holiness. Paul, Peter says, be holy. And remember, holiness also means to be set apart to be distinct, to stand out from the sinful ways of the world around us. As Jesus called us to in the, the Gospel of Matthew, he says, he, he says uh, um, let your light shine among men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Right? That, that's what Peter's talking about here, to stand out from the crowd, to be different, to let your light shine, that the world sees something different in you. Now, now, whenever I talk about holiness with Christians, inevitably somebody will say to me, well, well Jason, I mean, th that's too hard. Like, like, he can't really literally mean that, like we're really supposed to stand out that much from the world around us. And, and so a lot of Christians kind of use that as an excuse to, to just kind of throw in the towel and give up, right? 
But no, friends, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, you can barely read a page without finding this call, this command to holiness, to, to grow in Christ-likeness. It's all over the New Testament. And, and so there's this implication that we should be able to see progress in this in our lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in the book of Titus, chapter 2, in, in verse 11 through 12, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. When? In the present age. See, friends, God says this is something that's possible for us. We can live this way even now, even today. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. And through the grace of God, through what Jesus Christ has done for us, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that lives within us, through the word of God that guides us, through all these resources that God has given us, we have the power to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live as God's holy people set apart even now in the present age, Paul says. One of the early Christian apologists, one of the first Christian apologists in the church was a man by the name of Justin Martyr, second century apologist. He he wrote a, a book called Apologia, That's where we get the word apologetics from, the the word apologia. It means to give a defense. It's like a a legal term, like a lawyer making a defense in a court case. And Justin Martyr wrote his book, Apologia, to the Roman emperor at the time, Antoninus. And in his book, he he lays out a number of defenses for, for why Christianity is true. And he lays out a lot of the common reasons even today that we share for why we can believe in Christianity, why we can trust in Christianity. Jesus rose from the dead. He's a resurrected Savior. He lays out all those arguments. But then he makes an interesting argument. He says to the emperor, he says, examine the lives of Christians. You want to see how real Christianity is? Examine the lives of Christians. See their righteousness as opposed to the immorality of the culture around us. He he says to the emperor, look at the way Christians love one another. Look at the way Christians extend compassion to the outcasts in our society. Look at the way Christians distinguish themselves from the the sexual immorality and the perversion and the debauchery of our world. This is his argument to the Roman Empire. He says, "Look look at the Christians' lives. Friends, you want to know something that's very sad? There's not a single Christian apologist alive today who would make that argument. Look at the lives of Christians. I I got a dozen books in my office written in the last five years, some of the best Christian apologetics books that have come out in recent years. There's not one single one of them that says, here's why you should be a Christian. Look at how different Christians are from the world around them. That's sad, friends. God has called us to be holy. He's called us to be set apart. And and when the world around us doesn't see any difference in the way Christians live their lives from the way the world lives their lives, there's something wrong here, friends. And maybe 
this is an opportunity for at least us here at Lakes Free to reaffirm the commission and calling we've been given to be people of holiness. I, I can't help but wonder if our culture wouldn't take the church far more seriously if we sought to live out this calling more faithfully in our lives, to be set apart, to be distinct from the world around us. Not, not separating ourselves from the world, but living in the world while not being of the world. Jesus says, let your light shine among men that they may see your life, your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. I think this is a great opportunity for us to, to reaffirm this calling that we've been given. Now lastly this morning, in our commissioning here from the Apostle Peter, he tells us that we are to be people who embrace a different motivation. A different motivation. And, and in the last few verses of our passage this morning, Peter actually points us to, to three specific motivations that will distinguish every elect exile in this world from, from the world around us, okay? Instead of being people who, like people of the world, live lives motivated by the pursuit of transient hopes and fleeting joys and, and perishable rewards, Peter points us to three eternal motivations that will lead to a life of fulfillment now and to pleasures forevermore. What are these motivations? Peter says, number one, he, he, he points us to our heavenly father, he says, look to your heavenly father. And he says, number one, we have a heavenly father who judges impartially. And, and Peter reminds us that God is going to judge us, friends. Now, now there's two different judgments that are spoken of in the Bible. There, there's the judgment in, in the book of Revelation chapter 20 where God is going to separate unbelievers from believers. In Revelations 20, 11 through 15, we're, we're told that God is going to open the Lamb's book of life. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be sent into an eternity apart from God. But those whose names are found in the book of life will spend eternity with God in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. So, so there's that judgment, the judgment of unbelievers from believers. But there's another judgment the Bible speaks of. It's the great white throne of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ. It's the judgment of believers where we as Christians will be rewarded by Jesus for the things that we did for him in our lives, for, for the ways that we served him, for the ways that we lived on mission for him. It's a positive judgment, a judgment of rewards. We, we sang in that second song this morning, holy, 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 right? One of the lines was, and we're going to lay our crowns down upon a, a crystal sea, right? What's going to happen at that beam of judgment is Jesus is going to reward believers, and then we're told we in return are going to take those rewards and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Because it's not about us, ultimately. It's about giving him glory. And what a privilege will be ours one day, friends, to stand before Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, to receive rewards from him for the things we did on his behalf in this world, for the ways we used the time he gave us, for the ways we used the talents he gave us, for the ways we used the, the treasure he gave us for eternal significance. And Jesus is going to reward us for all of that. 
And in return, we're going to lay those rewards at his feet. Peter says, let that reality motivate us to, to live with eternity's values in view. And the second motivation that he points us to in, in verse 17, he says, not only do we have a father who judges impartially, but we have a father who is worthy of our fear. Now, now we hear this word fear, and oftentimes in our contemporary culture, we think of fear in the terms of, of terror and intimidation, but, but that's not the kind of fear Peter's talking about. He's using the term fear here in the sense of awe and reverence. Be motivated, friends, by the reality that we have a heavenly Father worthy of our fear, worthy of our awe and reverence. This is, this is the kind of fear of a child who knows their father's love. And because they know their father's love and his heart and his compassion and, and how much he cares about them, that f- child longs to please their father out of a sense of awe and reverence for him. Right? We, we want to honor our Father. And it's the same way for us as Christians when we come to understand who our Heavenly Father is. We, we're not intimidated or fearful, but, but the more we come to know His character, His love, His heart, His compassion, our motivation should be to desire to fear Him, to live our lives before Him in awe and reverence, to honor Him with all of our lives, to, to make His priorities our priorities. And then the third motivation that Peter points us to. He reminds us that we have a heavenly father who's paid a costly price for our salvation. Here in verses 18 through 21, he shares three things. He says, number one, remember, you've been redeemed. The word redeemed, friends, means to be purchased out of slavery. Imagine yourself as a slave standing chained in the the public marketplace and and you know your life is no longer yours. You're going to be sold into slavery from from that day forward and and somebody steps forward from the crowd and says, I'm going to purchase that man. I want him. And he purchases you out of slavery and he says, now you're free. Imagine the shock you'd experience in that moment. Imagine the awe you would have for this man who's just purchased your freedom. In fact, you'd probably fall at his feet and say, what can I do to repay you? How can I serve you? I want to be your servant now for the rest of my life because of what you've done in purchasing my freedom. Peter says we have a heavenly father who's redeemed us. But then he goes on and he tells us, remember what he's redeemed us with. He hasn't redeemed us with silver and gold, perishable things of this world. No, he's redeemed us, Peter says, with the precious blood of Christ. Friends, something you regard as precious is something that you hold in the highest esteem. And there has never been anything in this world more precious than the holy blood of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And God the Father sent the Son to come into this world to shed his precious blood as the payment for our rebellion, for our sin. That's what it cost to purchase us out of our slavery to sin, the precious blood of Jesus. And then Peter tells us here at the end that this Jesus was foreknown chosen before the foundation of this world. In other words, friends, that 
this plan wasn't an afterthought. This was God's plan before he even created the world to redeem the people he loved at the highest cost, the precious blood of his son Jesus, to purchase us out of our slavery to sin so that we could be reconciled to him and know life, life to the full. What greater motivation could we need to live as God's people in this world than to know the incomparable love and the amazing grace of our Heavenly Father? Friends, we might be exiles in this world, but we are elect exiles, children of our Heavenly Father, people who've been commissioned by the King of the universe to be His ambassadors, people of hope, people of holiness, people committed to living for his glory. What a calling we've been given. Friends, every single one of you here this morning has now been commissioned. You've been commissioned. Let's commit to going out and living for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you once again for these powerful words from the Apostle Peter. And we pray, God, that as we submit our hearts to these words, that you would use these truths and this commission you've given us to, to shape us into the people you desire us to be. May we look to you and your amazing grace and all of the promises that are ours in Christ, and may those things motivate us to live for you so that the world might know that there is a God in heaven. That, that the world might see what this God who is living and active and powerful can do in transforming the lives of people. May we shine our lights brightly in this world and, and set ourselves apart from this world so that we might show people the hope that is found in Jesus. Help us in this, Heavenly Father. Empower us by your Spirit. And may we live faithfully in this commissioning you've given us. We pray all this in your great name. Amen. Friends, I'm going to invite you to stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Have a blessed week. Hi everybody, Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.